Take your Bibles, please, and open them to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in the pew rack in front of you. Hebrews chapter 3. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's towards the end. It's in the New Testament. Towards the end of the New Testament, after all the letters of Paul and right before the book of Revelation and a couple of books before that. Book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Now, what I'd like to do this morning, just to give you some context, is take a look at chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 1 all the way down through chapter 4, verse 13. It's a long text. Here's why. Because we are now into the second week of a a four-week series talking about Christ, our rest. And last week we discussed rest for the humble, for those who have their confession in Christ and their confidence in Christ. Uh, We really learned how to boast well, not in our own strength and in our own glory, but in everything that Christ has done. And then today we're going to talk about the rest that the tender-hearted have. Next week, the rest that the obedient enjoy, and then finally, the faithful. The humble, the tender-hearted, the obedient, and the faithful. Those are the four weeks in the series. But that's going to take us all the way from chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 13, which is really one unit. And I was originally thinking maybe I would just preach that whole section in one sermon, but the more I got into it, the more I realized that it's really better to to break it down into these four. But please listen carefully as I read so that you've got the, the context of this amazing statement that the author makes regarding the fact that as glorious as Moses was in the eyes of the people, he pales into nothingness in comparison to the glory of Christ. This is God's holy word. Therefore, holy brothers, uh, you who share... This would be a great opportunity to turn your cell phones off. Good reminder. Let's try that again. This is God's holy, inspired word. Listen carefully to it. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. 
but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him, to whom we must give account. This is God's Word. Brothers and sisters, it's difficult to find a passage of Scripture more pointed in its encouragement and warning than the one I just read to you. It is difficult to find a passage of Scripture where the author takes such pains to carefully and consistently and faithfully direct the full weight of the authority of Scripture directly at the people who are listening. And I think part of that is because what you hold in your hand today as the book of Hebrews may very well have been a sermon originally preached. Very well, a manuscript, if you will, a transcript of something that was preached and not just written. 
A word that was delivered to a group of people who were on the very precipice of giving up on the Christian faith. Now, it's important for us to remember that there are going to be times where you are pressed up against the reality that no longer following Christ would be a lot easier than following Christ. And you might have a hard time understanding that because, quite frankly, we live in a day and age where very few of us can possibly relate to that situation. But may it be today an opportunity to strengthen you for what is to come, not to encourage you with what is happening already. Because if the Lord Jesus spoke truth to us, and if he did not exaggerate nor lie to us, then we should expect that in our generation there will come a point in time where to follow him means to suffer, where to follow him means to be persecuted. And so I would be doing you no service to act as if the way things are now is the way they're always going to be. In fact, it would be pastoral malpractice for me not to say to you, let us be careful that we at least be aware of how one might be tempted to no longer follow Christ, because even if it doesn't happen here, it might happen when you travel somewhere else or relocate. And if nothing else, it will give you an opportunity to relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ who live in countries right now where every single day is a battle to follow because it would be so much easier to give up. I was reading a famous soliloquy from Shakespeare's Henry V last night, and there's this scene, and as you might know from the history of the play, it, it takes place during the wars between England and France, and the king of England, with about 5,000 troops, stands before the French army that had at least 30,000, though historians say maybe 100,000, and he has to rally his troops to go in and to fight against the French. And he says at the beginning of what's known as the St. Crispin's Day speech that if you don't have the heart to be in this fight, you can go home. In fact, I'll pay your way. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a train ticket. You can go straight back home. You can just sit by the fire and wait for news of how the battle went. Because frankly, I don't want to give you the honor of dying alongside these men who are going to go in and fight the battle. But he says to those who do go in to fight the battle, that if you do survive this day, then every single time someone mentions this St. Crispin's Day fight, you're going to roll up your sleeves and you are going to show the scars that you got during this battle and it's going to be with great pride and all the men around you are going to wish that they had had the opportunity to fight on this day. Those are the sort of the motivating speeches that Shakespeare can write, isn't it? I mean, you read that and you're like, yeah, let's go fight the French. I like the French. My wife's French. Nothing against French people. If you're French today, nothing against you. And I don't in any way mean to compare the writer of the Hebrews to Shakespeare, but, but in a sense, that's what he's doing to these believers. He, he is encouraging them with strong words to say this life, should you lose it, is nothing compared to the eternal life which is already secured for you in Christ. It's as good as done. He's already entered the rest. And so, in a sense, it's almost paradoxical. He's saying, fight in order to rest. How do those two fit together? They fit together because the fight and the willingness to persist and to persevere is predicated not on worldly success, but on 
eternal rest. That the very doorway through which one enters eternal rest may be the laying down of the life that our Lord said you can't preserve anyway. And so, at the heart of the message today is the aim to preserve a tender heart. The goal of the message today is that you would be able to preserve maintain, cultivate, and receive all the benefits from having a tender heart. That's all that the author is going to ask of you today. And he's going to do that by pointing your eyes in three directions. So if you like to take notes, this is the outline. It's very simple. Looking backward, looking inward, and looking forward. Looking backward, looking inward, and looking forward. And so, as he begins his sermon, or this part of his message, he starts by looking backward, and he he looks backward by quoting. He looks backward by taking a poem, by taking a psalm, a well-known song, and and he plucks it out, and he uses it to illustrate his point. Let me ask you this before we get into the text this morning. How many of you at this, right at this moment, right today, if I, if I were to, to get a, a microphone and walk right up to you and, and, and hand it to you, how many of you right now today could quote a song from start to finish? I mean, you could stay right from the beginning. I can go from the beginning of the song all the way to the end of the song because I know it. It's in my mind. It's in my heart. I bet all of you could, even though you can't sing, even though you can't play an instrument. Because you've heard songs and you've listened to them. And it could be a Christian song. It could be a hymn that you knew when you were younger. It could be a secular song. In fact, how many times have we, when we're trying to describe something to somebody else or to ourselves, we reach back and we grab a lyric out of a song? Some of you are so into certain bands. You just love them. You've got every album. You've been to every concert. And there are moments of your life that could be defined and explained by borrowing lines from those songs. Can you relate to this? Most of us can, because music is incredibly powerful. I've often said it's a lot easier to memorize a song or a hymn than to memorize a scripture verse, and it's certainly easier to remember a song than it is to remember a sermon. I realize, I I fully get it. Every week, I'm going to say something to you, and 99.9% of it is going to go in one ear and out the other. And I know that because I can't remember what I said the week before sometimes. (laughs) Like, I get that. But there's something about the the, the music that sticks. Please, beloved, that's what the, the author of Hebrews is doing here. He says, I know you know this song. And he reaches back, and it's what we know of as Psalm 95. Now, they didn't have numbers back then, remember? When the author is quoting the psalms it was just a collection of songs somebody would begin to sing the song and all the other jews would know what the song was but the song he uses is in psalm 95 it was read to you earlier by john and psalm 95 is fascinating it's broken down into two parts the first part is come sing to the lord celebrate be joyful get instruments play your instruments loudly sing loudly 
make a big commotion to the glory of God. This is what we do in corporate worship. And then, for some reason, the second half of the song ends on kind of a downer. And don't be like what your ancestors did in the wilderness where they doubted God and they all died. We don't sing songs like that anymore, do we? You praise the Lord, and let's not doubt Him because you know what happens. You're going to die in the wilderness and birds are going to eat your carcass. Like it's hard to kind of find a poetic way of doing that. But that's exactly what the author does. And so he only quotes the second half. So pick it up. This is the, the first point. By looking backward, how do you maintain a tender heart? He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and I might add, he understands from this point, the Holy Spirit is the inspiring one in Scripture. He inspires the author to write this. And notice the part he quotes, beginning in verse 6 of our Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Stop right there. Remember, the tender heart is the goal. Allow your eyes to fall on it there in verse 8, do not harden your hearts. Verse 10, they go astray in their heart. Verse 12, an evil, unbelieving heart. Verse 15, do not harden your hearts. And then in verse 19, what this leads to, which is unbelief. Hardened hearts, hardened hearts, unbelieving hearts, hardened hearts, unbelief. Do you see the theme? Now, lest you think this has nothing to do with you because your heart's never hard towards the Lord, may I remind you that we all go through seasons of hard-heartedness. We all go through seasons of doubt. And I believe that this generation of ours is perhaps less open and honest about it. But you don't have to go back very far. And you can read in the journals and the diaries and the autobiographies of some of the most well-known leaders of the Christian faith and see how some of them for weeks or months or years went through seasons of such darkness and hard-heartedness they doubted whether or not they were truly born again. One in particular, a Puritan writer whom I enjoy reading quite a bit, went through a seven-year period of darkness while still maintaining his ministry and still preaching and still catechizing the children and still leading in the Lord's Supper and in baptism, but week after week after week struggling with the darkness of his own heart. And so I can't come into a situation like this in a room with these many people and assume that none of you are experiencing that. So, so may today be a day of reckoning for you where you fall back on the mercy of God and see His loving kindness in how He treats even the hard-hearted. Please notice, he says, as he continues to quote the psalm, that you must not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. The author says you maintain a tender heart by looking backwards, by looking backwards to your ancestors. He says here, your fathers. Let's just again, just understand the context of the writing. He's writing to the Hebrews. Hebrews were Jews. The Jewish fathers would have been the ones in the wilderness. So when he says your fathers, he's talking about your, your Jewish fathers, your ancestors. Well, those ancestors that he's referring to were in the wilderness some almost 1,500 years earlier. So this goes way back. 
And the psalm that is being quoted was written about a thousand years earlier. So you can see that this has been a pattern. Always reminding, always going back. It was their fathers who grumbled against Moses. It was their fathers who doubted God. It was their fathers who saw all of these glorious miracles in Egypt, and then they got out into the wilderness, and they thought God had brought them there to kill them. And God, in His righteous wrath, turns on His own people. And were it not for the glorious intercession of Moses, the real human high priest, He would have destroyed them. Moses is the one who asks for patience with the people. Moses is the one who says, Lord, kill me if you need to. Moses is the one who says, let these people see your glory. And for 40 years he did that while not letting them enter into the land. And so the author to the Hebrews says, listen, you Jewish believers who are contemplating going back to Judaism, go back and look at what happened to your forefathers when they doubted God. If I can just interject for a moment something that is not directly linked to this text, but I think would be helpful. It's important at some point in your life to make this decision where you pivot from being really concerned about being a good descendant to being a good ancestor. Catherine taught me this recently. We were having a conversation over dinner and we were just saying how sometimes the people that we minister to carry a very heavy burden placed on them by their parents. They come from dysfunctional homes, even abusive homes. Come from situations where, where they've been manipulated, uh, where they've been taken advantage of, where parents to this day cause them to feel guilty and, and inadequate and just never measuring up. And I know it's our heart's desire to, to help people be liberated from these sort of self-imposed expectations or even very real expectations that their parents have on them, especially when it's unbiblical and unhelpful. But in the course of that conversation, she said, you know, there comes a point where you have to stop worrying so much about being a good descendant and be a good ancestor. Turn the tables on all of this. Don't make it a multi-generational thing. Stick your flag in the ground and say, this far and no further, and, and I don't want my kids to look back on me and say the same things that I sadly have to say about my parents. And this is what the author is saying here, I believe. But look back on what they've done and say, we're not going to do that. May my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren look back and not see somebody who was unfaithful to the Lord, but somebody who was faithful to the Lord. Do you want to be that, this generation? Do you want to be that for the ones that are coming afterwards? Then make the decision now. How do you do that? Well, it starts by remembering that you can provoke God. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that these people who had witnessed the glory of God rescuing them from Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time, the most powerful nation probably ever, even in comparison to, to today, relative to the other nations in the world, no one was more powerful than Egypt. And God had shown them through systematic 
proclamation of his truth and then ten plagues that utterly devastated their culture, their religion, and their economy, that he was the only one true God. I mean, if anybody, you would think, would have a reason to trust God, it would be the Jews who came out of Egypt. Would you agree? I mean, you can all look back and the wonderful things God has done in your life, but I I suspect you cannot point to something quite as glorious as what he did for those individual Jews. You pray for God's guidance and you get it, but I, I, I would suspect he has yet to appear in a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud in order to direct you, you know? It's like, Lord, do I move? Do I not move? Well, oh, there's this pillar of fire. Follow me. You know, this pillar of fire leading you to where you're supposed to go next. I mean, if that happened even once in your life, you'd be like, I'm never doubting again. What did they go through? And yet they did. Uh, Let me add, guard your heart from pride because you know what? If they did it, you'd probably do it too. This whole generation got wiped out. You know, we talk about wandering in the wilderness I think maybe we have a, a difficult time imagining what that's like. And if you've ever been to Israel, one of the things that you'll, you'll come away with immediately, I promise it, the, the, the first thing, well, maybe not the first thing, but one of the things you'll come away with is, wow, this place is a lot smaller than I thought. That you look around and you can see from where you're standing this town and that city and that landmark. You realize now that the reason everybody walked back in those days wasn't just because they had no transportation other than walking, but it was also because you could walk everywhere you wanted to go. It was all very close. And so the wilderness wanderings, it's not like they wandered from Arizona to Massachusetts, like in a straight line camping along the way. They were in the wilderness. Like you could look down and see them. Like they were all camped out there for for years and years and years at a time. They didn't wake up every morning, break camp, and go to some other location. They were there, stuck for 40 years because of their doubts until all that generation died and was buried. The tabernacle remained, the the tents remained, the sacrifices remained. Moses' own family would commute in from time to time to visit him in the wilderness, overseeing this flock of rebellious Jews who were the followers of Yahweh. It was in that wilderness that for 40 years God revealed his glory to them, while at the same time saying, you will not enter my rest. In fact, he says, I swore in my wrath. Those words are chilling, aren't they? When God says, I swore in my wrath, that has got to make you stop. In my small group I'm a part of, we, we ended our study in the attributes of God with God's wrath. It's, it's a great way to end, you know. Like, the wrath of God. And, and we were all discussing how, in reality, we don't talk about it very much. We talk about the love of God. We talk about the omnipotence of God. Maybe the omnipresence of God. We like the omnis. We talk about His grace, His mercy, His love, His providence. But how many sermons have you heard on the wrath of God? How many lessons, Bible lessons, on the wrath of God? Would people come to that Bible study? You know, we're starting a Bible study this summer. Oh, what are you studying? The wrath of God. They're like, oh, I forgot I'm busy. Because you don't want to hear about it. But it's just as much a part of His character as His love and mercy. As one author said, whatever God is, he is to infinity. And when God, with infinite wrath and justice, swears by his own name that they will not enter his rest, you can guarantee there is no way out. 
There is no technicality upon which that judgment will not fall. And so by looking backward, you can see that He is faithful to execute His judgment and in so doing, keep your heart tender to the truth so that you don't become like those in the previous generation who knew His wrath. These Hebrew Christians needed to be warned as much as the Jewish people in the time the psalm was written that reflected back on the Jews in the wilderness some thousand years earlier. And just so you've got some context, you can turn here if you would like to Exodus chapter 17. This is the passage in which the offense in view here occurred, Exodus 17. Beginning in verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Wow, there's a lesson there, isn't there? Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Has He been unfaithful to you thus far? You're thirsty. Yes, I understand. And so does He. And He has not let you down in the past. He will not let you down now. Don't quarrel with me. Don't doubt Him. But they did. But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Pastors have felt that way sometimes, I think. It's like my life verse. No, not really. I'm just joking. I'm joking. You're not like that at all. Most of you. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Horeb was that mountain in the southern part of the peninsula between Egypt and the promised land. And he goes and he strikes a rock there. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Just let that settle in for a moment. They named the place after the doubting, quarreling people who said, is God for us or not? Every time they walked by and they saw that mountain and they saw that rock, they were reminded that was the place where we doubted God. That was the place where we said His grace has ended. That's the place where Moses had to take the staff that he threw down and turned into a serpent or that he struck the Nile and turned it to blood. That's where he had to strike the rock and water came flowing out as this this. this waterfall of rebuke to us and our unbelief. 
The first way in which you maintain a tender heart is to look backward and to learn from the hard lessons that your ancestors learned when they doubted God. The second way is by looking inward. We see this in verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's very interesting to me that this is the point where the author turns the attention inward on the people. And he says, if any of you brothers, he doesn't call them the same kind of brother as he does in other parts of the book. I think here, brothers, it it may be for the other believers as well, but really he's talking to his Jewish brethren. He's saying to all of you who are Jewish, who might be tempted to go back to this other way, take care, lest in any single one of you there be an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But in strong contrast, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He tells them to look inward. In fact, if there's a a dominant idea in this whole section, it is to not harden your hearts. And if there is a dominant remedy to a heart that's hard, It is to take care, to take special, specific care, to look inward, to identify that which is evil and unbelieving. So, let's take a moment to discuss this, because it would seem somewhat antithetical to what we so often preach here, which is that we are not to be so absorbed with morbid introspection that we are looking for good works in our hearts in order to confirm that God really does love us and care about us. And I know that this verse might seem to say the opposite. You're like, but pastor, you keep saying all the time, like, don't don't worry about that. Just keep your eyes focused on Christ and his finished work. This here appears to tell me to do the opposite. Well, my argument is that it's not the opposite. It actually complements what it means to look to the finished work of Christ. Because The first work of Christ, according to the explanation of the new covenant in Jeremiah, is that he takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart made of what? Flesh. That that, that hard-heartedness is taken away. You don't have the heart of stone anymore. The very fact that you would desire to, to try to determine if you have an unbelieving heart is an indication that you likely don't have an unbelieving heart. The, 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 the conviction that comes, the desire to remain tender-hearted and warm in your affection towards Christ is a good indication that He is in you. So I want to encourage this kind of examination. May it be regular. May it be consistent. May it be fruitful and encouraging. A constant turning inward to ask myself, is there anything that would define evil or an unbelieving pattern in my heart, causing me to fall away and to reject the living God? There are numerous things that could happen to lead to that. I'll give you just two. The first one is sin. The first one is sin. If there is a consistent pattern of unrepentant sin in your heart, it will harden it. It will harden it. It's like having a, a bag full of concrete and, and you leave it open and it rains. 
Everywhere that that concrete got wet, it got hard. In the same way, the heart, if it is sprinkled with sin, it becomes hard and calcified in that area. In in fact, uh, there's an illustration in the the Scriptures that says your heart, your conscience, it can be actually seared, burned. If you ever had a burn so bad that it kills the skin multi-layers deep so that even after it heals, you've got no feeling. That's what he's talking about. That kind of unbelieving heart comes from sin unrepented of to where you finally convince yourself there really is no cost and there is no consequence. Brothers and sisters, pray that God would purge your heart from any ongoing unrepentant sin that you're coveting and holding on to that you know dishonors Him because the consequences can be dire. Secondly, circumstances. Sin, number one. Circumstances, number two. Circumstances can harden your heart. Situations get so hard. You're suffering. You're sick. Uh, You're going through some kind of turmoil at work or in the church. There's division in your family. There's something in your marriage. There's a a painful event with your children. And, And what happens is you end up becoming so focused on that that you become hard hearted towards God and you begin to doubt his goodness. You begin to say, I'm not really sure he does care about me because why is he letting all of these things happen to me? They're so hard. And if I can go so far as to make this comparison, I wouldn't say it's a big leap to compare that with what the people in Israel did when they thought he brought them out to the wilderness to kill them. Maybe you're not saying it that way. Maybe you're not saying, oh Lord, have you brought me through the circumstances to kill me? But maybe you're saying, have you brought me into this just to make my life miserable? Like I didn't have enough difficulty in life? You you have to add this to it now? Where are you? I thought you were good. I thought you cared. I thought you loved me. I thought you wanted what was good for me. I thought your will for my life was my happiness. Now we don't say it that way, but that's kind of what we mean. Sin and circumstances. Bring them both before the Lord. Ask Him to purge you of both. Keep your heart free from evil. Free from unbelief. And by the way, don't do it alone. Look what verse 13 says. Exhort one another every day. You only can experience that if you're in a situation where there's corporate fellowship. You can't be a Christian all by yourself, disconnected from the church, disconnected from other Christians, because you're not constantly hearing this exhortation one to another. And he says, do it as long as it's called today. Now this is sort of a play on words. He's saying, you do it every day that's called today. So if you wake up and, and it's a today day, then do it. So like, if that's how you have to understand it. It's not that complicated, right? Like, is it today? And someone will say, yes. They say, well, good, and this applies. Do it every day that ends with day. And do it now. And, and it's interesting, isn't it, that he's quoting from Psalms, and, and David was saying, do it every day today. Because even then, there was a temptation to go away from the... And they weren't in the wilderness. In fact, they were, they were now in the land. They'd been settled. And even they were tempted to. And we, with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, can be tempted as well. And therefore, we encourage each other, as long as it's called today, not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, sin is so deceitful. It is so easy at manipulating and tricking us into thinking it is not what it is. That's why you need help from somebody else. You can go to another brother or sister in Christ and exhort them and to say, no, this is sin. You don't think it is, but it is. You have been tricked. You have been deceived. 
let me help you. Jude says, let me, let me rescue you as it was from the very flames. Let me pull you out of this because you're not seeing it the right way. Now, that's what we can do for one another. I believe I mentioned it last week, but the, the ministry of the Word far exceeds what happens on a Sunday morning from the pulpit. The ministry of the Word is an ongoing ministry of the Word between believers within the corporate fellowship. So how does one maintain a tender heart? By looking backward, by looking inward, and then finally by looking forward. And we'll be quick here to wrap up this point. Looking forward. For, he says, by, by way of advancing his argument, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence. If we hold our original confidence. How long? Firm to the end. Now this is very important. We look forward to the end. We start with the end in mind. It was Jonathan Edwards who gave those famous resolutions when he was just 17 years old, and one of them was that he would think every day about death. Now, that might seem like a strange thing for a 17-year-old to be thinking about, but you know, Jonathan Edwards said if he is going to live his life to the glory of God, he needs to remind himself every day that today could be the last day. And so he says, that I'm always going to have the end in mind. And the, the author to the Hebrews says the same thing for us. He says, I want you to hold your confidence firm until the end. I want you to know for sure your assurance of pardon, your assurance of salvation. How do you know that? By persevering. You don't persevere in order to have an assurance. You have assurance because you persevere. The perseverance we have, the assurance that we have, is by God's grace, and as it is made evident in your life, it is a comfort. One cannot say that he has Christ, but has yet abandoned him. The one who does not persevere is the one who should not have assurance. The one who is persevering in belief is the one who is assured. This is how the system works. And this is why, please, beloved, be careful about affirming immature external apparent conversions. This is why we don't pin our conversion to walking an aisle, signing a card, saying a prayer. It's not about some event that happened in your life. Yes, when somebody opens up their heart with a desire to obey and believe the Gospel, you want to cultivate that. But cultivating is very different than providing false assurance. And I can tell you that having been a pastor for over 20 years now, I have seen many, many cases where people have been grieved over the fact that somebody in their family is clearly not walking with the Lord, clearly not a believer, and yet they wrestle every day with going back to some event that happened when they were 6 or 8 or 12 years old and saying, but I remember so clearly the day when they said the prayer. And you have to lovingly, pastorally shepherd somebody through that to say it really doesn't matter what they said back then. What matters is, is there evidence and fruit-bearing and consistency now? And then the grace ending to that, the gospel ending to that, is that so long as it is today, they can be called back with love to repentance. And the moment that repentance occurs, the moment that turn happens, that conversion is real. It's not over until it's over, as they say. So, yes, we'd be careful not to affirm somewhat immature statements. We, we want to encourage 
and see that, that it grows and becomes more solid and knowledgeable. But then if there is a falling away, that there is a hopefulness in our prayer that God would in His mercy, like He did with the prodigal, restore them one day. And so, we know that we have a, heart, we have a soft heart if we maintain that confidence we had at the beginning and have it all the way until the end. As is said, once again, look at the refrain. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then He gives these questions at the end. They're kind of like application questions. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because you all know the answer. But, but He says them just almost to, to drive that point deep into your mind. He says, for who were those who, rebe- uh, who heard and yet rebelled? Who? It was God's own people. He says, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? What's his point? His point is that if you think that this couldn't happen to you, consider them. If you think you could never get a hard heart, consider them. Look what, look what God did for them. And yet they developed a hard heart. Furthermore, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? What caused God's unmitigated provocation? What caused his judgment to fall on his own people? It was their sin. If he did it to them, he will do it to us. Verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But those who were disobedient. The evidence of a hard heart is disobedience and unbelief. Those are the ones that he swore would not enter his rest. And if he swore they wouldn't, he swears we won't either. So, verse 19, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Who does that put the responsibility on? Puts it on those who are called to believe. Now the gospel says that God created you. And that because of your sin, and because of His holiness, that there is an impossibility for relationship. Cannot tolerate you in His presence. And so because you are a guilty sinner, He does you no wrong by actually punishing you, by sending you to hell forever. But the way His love was manifest to you was by sending His own Son as a substitute. Truly God, truly man, that you might put your faith in Him because He lived a life that you could never live and died the death you could never die in order that He might give you His life and that you might be clothed in His righteousness and able to stand once again fully united in great joy with that holy, holy, holy God of the universe. And what obstacle does He place between the sinner and salvation? Only this, that you must believe. He doesn't ask you to clean up your life before you do it. He doesn't ask you to jump through all these hoops. He doesn't say you've got to do all these good works. He says you must believe. And so the invitation to you this morning, if you have yet to do that, is to believe. Believe what the Scripture says. 
about the perfect finished work of Christ and how it's offered to you for salvation. Put your faith in that. And know the joy of the salvation that can only come from Him. And for those of you that are already born again, do what you can to preserve that precious, tender heart. You say, how do I do that? Well, one way is by not searing that conscience of yours. That conscience that is the herald inside of your own heart that constantly cries out what is true in the face of all of Satan's lies. And also remember that one day you're going to enter your rest and all the things that bring you such sadness today will all be gone. And so you can not look to sin in order to ease your troubled mind. You cannot look to doubting God in order to ease your troubled mind because of circumstances. You can instead just look again to Christ, as we have said before, the author and finisher of your faith and the one who will be faithful to persevere you until the end. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we are just so grateful for this word today. It's a, it's a heavy word. It's one that, uh, that hits us because we're all guilty. Looking back on the children of Israel, they, they sinned against you with their doubt. and You sent serpents. You sent the ground to open up and swallow up whole households. You sent all kinds of pestilence. and All of these things as a way to demonstrate the reality of your wrath. And so we know it is real. We know that we place ourselves from time to time in a similar posture towards you as they had, doubting you, questioning you, not believing. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us today to see that for what it is, to repent of it, turn our back on that kind of response to you, Instead, cultivate genuine, tender hearts. Give us rest, I pray, in the finished work and rest of Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.